60, where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Uh, but when he's talking about them, he's talking about the Israelites who were brought up out of slavery in Egypt. Moses was their immediate deliverer. Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? Where is he who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses? Where is he who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name? Where is he who led them through the depths? Isaiah wants that Lord. He wants that God. The God who delivered. Where is he in his own circumstances? Isaiah continues in 63. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. Oh Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. So what he's imploring the Lord to do here is two parts. To look down and to return. Then in chapter 64, he opens with, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we've been a long time. And shall we be saved? That's a good question. Shall we be saved? Isaiah is looking back on centuries of history in Israel's past. And he doesn't see any lasting salvation. He doesn't see that they've entered into all the promised rest that was promised in Abraham. And through Abraham, all the, sea, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. There's a lot missing. And he's looking at their sin, in spite of the fact that they know God is angry. We've been stuck here a long time. Is there salvation? Can things change? He ends his prayer, the very last verse, with two questions. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? And that's how his prayer ends. It's a prayer of longing. It's a prayer of reminding the Lord of what he's done in the past. It's a prayer of crying out. It's a prayer of humility, weakness. It's all those things. There's a lot to like in that prayer. And then the answer to that prayer comes in chapters 65 and 66, which is where we're at now. It's the final scene, the last dramatic finish to the Lord answering or responding to Isaiah. You can kind of think about it in terms of, does he answer Isaiah? He certainly responds to Isaiah. Does he answer the question, will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Does he answer the question, will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Does he answer the question, and shall we be saved? It's a beautiful passage of Scripture. I want you to, we're going to listen to it and pull out your little pink sheet in your bulletin. I'm going to let David Suchet read the entire chapter. He reads in the New International Version. Chapter 65, I want you to think just in terms of big themes, not particulars. Uh, I'm interested to know why that verse reads that way or about that small thing. Think in terms of what's, what is the big lesson in all of Isaiah chapter 65. So follow along and uh, listen. Isaiah chapter 65. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. 
To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, Here am I, here am I. All day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations, a people who continually provoke me to my very face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on altars of brick who sit among the graves and spend their nights keeping secret vigil, who eat the flesh of pigs and whose pots hold broth of impure meat, who say, Keep away, don't come near me, for I am too sacred for you. Such people are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that keeps burning all day. See, it stands written before me. I will not keep silent. But will pay back in full. I will pay it back into their laps, both your sins and the sins of your ancestors, says the Lord. Because they burned sacrifices on the mountains and defied me on the hills, I will measure into their laps the full payment for their former deeds. This is what the Lord says. As when juice is still found in a cluster of grapes, and people say, Don't destroy it, there is still a blessing in it. So will I do on behalf of my servants. I will not destroy them all. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob, and from Judah those who will possess my mountains. My chosen people will inherit them, and there will my servants live. Sharon will become a pasture for flocks, and the valley of Achor a resting place for herds, for my people who seek me. But as for you who forsake the Lord, and forget my holy mountain, who spread a table for fortune and fill bowls of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you for the sword, and all of you will fall in the slaughter. For I called, but you did not answer, I spoke, but you did not listen, you did evil in my sight, and chose what displeases me. Therefore this is what the Sovereign Lord says, My servants will eat, but you will go hungry. My servants will drink, but you will go thirsty. My servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. My servants will sing out of the joy of their hearts, but you will cry out from anguish of heart and wail in brokenness of spirit. You will leave your name for my chosen ones to use in their curses. The Sovereign Lord will put you to death, but to his servants he will give another name. Whoever invokes a blessing in the land will do so by the one true God. Whoever takes an oath in the land will swear by the one true God, for the past troubles will be forgotten and hidden from my eyes. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. 
Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain says the Lord. So that's the Lord's response to Isaiah's prayer. That's been a lengthy prayer. I, uh, the Lord's response winds up being even longer than the prayer because it also includes all of Isaiah chapter 66. But did you notice any themes that you consider significant or what was the big picture you got out of Isaiah chapter 65? Especially in light of Isaiah's questions and lament. Anything stand out? <clears throat> Lori? The Lord's will will be done. God will have his way. I think that's certainly true. Both in, God will have his way both in A and B. What's the A and the B? Both in salvation and in judgment. I mean, we started off early on in Isaiah doing chapters 40 to 66, and we identified certain themes that are prevalent through all of Isaiah, especially 40 to 66, because that's where we've spent our time. And in those chapters, Isaiah 40 to 66, there's a theme of sin, judgment, salvation, that is grace, encouragement for the remnant, and a complete renewal and reversal, especially of Zion. It's very interesting that all five of those themes are in chapter 65. I mean, up until this point, usually one of those themes kind of takes center stage one of those themes is obviously what is being portrayed most of all. But now in this chapter 65, you've got all those themes. You've got the Lord making a, a distinction between those who will perish because God is just and he is righteous and he's not going to excuse sin. But there's also this theme of grace and a remnant. And the Lord's going to preserve them and fulfill His promise in them. Both those themes are there. There's certainly this theme of renewal and reversal. You've, he's talking about a new heaven and a new earth, whatever that means. We'll have to talk about that in a couple of weeks. All of those themes are in this single chapter. 
And this is kind of in light of Isaiah, who back in chapter 64 said, Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. We are all your people. I want you to think about John the Baptist for a moment. I want you to think about how John the Baptist came on the scene early in all of the Gospels. And John the Baptist's ministry, according to Matthew chapter 3, looks like this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist is the one spoken of by Isaiah who's preparing the way for Messiah. It goes on. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We are all God's people. To say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I think, though I can't say exactly where Isaiah is at when he prays his prayer and says, we're all your people, what Isaiah means by that. But certainly, if he meant the wrong thing, John the Baptist offers some correction Don't think just because you're a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that you've got entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Don't think that's enough. Don't think because you've gathered with the church this morning that you've got entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Don't think because maybe you've been baptized or you participated in the Lord's Supper. Was it last week? Don't think because you go through those religious practices that somehow that's good enough to get you into the kingdom of heaven. It requires something more than that. It it requires something more than our perceived morality and good works and service and devotion. It requires the forgiveness of sins. And that doesn't come based upon our own efforts. It comes based upon who, who the Messiah is and what he accomplishes. So what John the Baptist says is is, uh, said in even a bigger way by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. But I'm going to show you on the screen, I'm going to show you the first six verses of chapter 9. I'm going to show you the last couple verses of chapter 9, which then goes right into chapter 10. Because I think Paul also speaks to the situation that a Jewish person, an Israelite, needs to know it's not enough just to be the right ethnicity. It's not enough to be in America where still largely it's considered a Christian nation. It's at least the predominant uh, faith that people identify with. It's not enough just to be there and identify it uh, with that religion in some impersonal sense. Paul puts it this way. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I think Isaiah has that too. 
I think that's why Isaiah prayed the prayer that he prayed. I could wish that myself were accursed, says Paul, and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They're Israelites. And to them belong the adoption. That is, God adopted Israel to be His chosen people. Not the Philistines, not the Syrians, not the, some Canaanite group, not the Edomites. To Israel belong the adoption, the glory of God, the covenants given to various Israelites in the Old Testament, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Messiah, Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. They have every advantage. You're in America. You have a lot of advantages, too. You have access to Scripture like a lot of the world does not have access to Scripture. And we sometimes, probably often, take it for granted. You have access to reading materials, to, to listen to Christian programming on radio. I don't know if they still have some on TV. There's good and bad. But we have access to so much. Just like Paul says, they had access to so much. In a greater way. Because God was so involved with them. To what end? With what result? Verse 6 reads this way. This is from Berkeley Translation. It is not as if God's message had failed. For by no means all who descend from Israel belong to Israel. Just the fact that you're a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob does not get you into the kingdom of heaven. It does not result in the forgiveness of sins. Just like the fact that you may own your own Bible and drive to your own local church does not get you into the kingdom of heaven. It's something more than that. Then in the end of chapter... Well, this is juxtaposed against Isaiah saying, We're all your people. Paul says, Not everybody who's an Israelite is a child of Abraham by faith. It goes on, What shall we say then? That Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. Gentiles are being declared righteous. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Gentiles are obtaining a righteousness by faith. Israel, who's working really hard to be righteous, fails to ever achieve it. That's what Isaiah's unpacked, or what Paul's unpacking in Romans 9, 10, and 11. A righteousness won, received, and a righteousness never achieved. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. 
We're born into this world seeking to establish our own righteousness. We're born into this world just trying to distinguish ourselves from other people. I'm not that bad. Or here's why I think I'm good. And so long as we try to establish our righteousness, we fail to ever achieve righteousness. Because the only righteousness that is pleasing to God is the righteousness achieved by the Son. Because only He was perfectly righteous. Initial comments and questions. This is going to set the stage for entering into Isaiah chapter 65. All right. Let's celebrate Christ being the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. A righteousness by faith alone. Jonathan's going to come and lead us in a couple songs, the first of which will be Wonderful, Merciful Savior. The second song will be a, a good old Fanny Crosby song. Let's uh, everybody stand and we'll sing through Wonderful, Merciful Savior. The word... You may turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 65 if you haven't already. You'll find that in the Pew Bible, page 623. So Isaiah chapter 65, it's obviously got the context. The context of what immediately came before in Isaiah chapter 64, where Isaiah ends with, Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? And the answer starts in those first two verses. The Lord says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good following their own devices. What the Lord says in those first two verses is also what he said back in chapter 59. So flip back just a page or two in your Bible and let's review or remember how the Lord responded in Isaiah 59, the first three verses. What's being made clear is that the problem or the breakdown of the relationship, the lack of why the covenant doesn't seem to be getting fulfilled, is not on the Lord's part, it's on Israel's part. It's not because the Lord has somehow become so transcendent that He's distant and removed and uncaring. The problem is Israel's sin. So in chapter 59... The Lord says, or Isaiah writes, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or His ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness, and on it goes. So it's a, what we're seeing in Isaiah chapter 65 is a repetition of what we already found in Isaiah chapter 59. The problem is Israel. The reason why Israel isn't entering into all this wonderful blessing that Isaiah keeps promising, he keeps recording what the Lord tells him, Isaiah's not experiencing it. Israel's not experiencing it. In fact, Israel's about ready to go into exile. They're going to lose everything. The temple, Jerusalem, the walls, security, peace. They're going to lose it all. In light of that, the Lord says, I'm here. I haven't got, you're as close to God as you want to be. I'm as close to God as I want to be. 
The problem isn't the Lord is distant. The problem is I have devotion to other things. We talked a little bit about devotion in Sunday school. The early church in Acts chapter 2, after Pentecost, they were devoted to certain things that made the church the church. It was top priority. I mean, other things, I may not have time for that, or, you know, I'm not sure I can commit to that, but they were not going to not be committed to the church. That was way too many knots. But they were going to be committed to God's people, to God's kingdom, to God's work. And they were going to find ways to integrate it into all the rest of life because that's where their heart was. That's where their treasure was. And you pay attention to your treasure. So who's the Lord talking about in verses 1 and 2? There are some commentators, a minority group of commentators, that will say, yes, I know, Paul is going to quote those verses and apply verse 1 to the Gentiles and verse 2 to Israel. But there are some commentators that say, well, that's true, and they don't deny it. In fact, they embrace it. It's, it's not that they uh, have a problem with that. Some commentators would say, when Isaiah first wrote those words, it all applied to Israel. That in verse 1, the Lord is talking to Israel. And in verse 2, the Lord is talking to Israel. To keep it short, I'm going to say I think they're wrong. I think there's, I think there's a contrast, a sharp contrast, even when Isaiah wrote those words between one group of people, this, these those who did not ask, these those who did not seek, they are a nation not called by the Lord's name. In contrast to, in verse 2, a nation that is called by His name and who isn't responding. So let's think about Romans chapters 9 to 11. In those chapters, Paul gives a theology of Israel. Uh, in those chapters in this larger book of Romans, which is just considered by many like a crown jewel of the New Testament, in Romans chapter 9, Paul addresses Israel in her past. In Romans chapter 10, he deals with Israel as she stands today, in Paul's day. I would say still today, today. And in Romans chapter 11, he begins looking forward to Israel in the future. But it's all about Israel in those three chapters. But it's verses 20 and 21 of chapter 10, well, that's Israel's present, where he quotes what Isaiah says. And it looks like this. I'm going to give it to you from several different translations. They all pretty much say the, say the same thing, but I want to make sure that you get what Paul says. So, in the English Standard Version, it looks like this. <clears throat> then Isaiah is so bold. And I, by the way, I, I really wish I could develop the context of, of when he says, then Isaiah. Like, obviously, it's pointing back to what Paul has already said. I don't have time for that. I wish I did. Romans is terrific. But if I do that, we'll never get out of Isaiah. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, so there's obviously a contrast, not the first group, but now of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. New King James. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. The Holman Christian Standard Bible. 
And Isaiah says boldly, I was found by those who were not looking for me. I revealed myself to those who were not asking for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long I've spread out my hands to a disobedient and defiant people. Did I already show you New King James? I think this is NIV. I should have changed that. The NIV says, and Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. What Paul is explaining by quoting those two verses from Isaiah, he's explaining his ministry. He's explaining what you'll find as we go through the book of Acts downstairs in Sunday school. What Paul is finding is that the Jews, and Paul always starts in the, in the uh, synagogue. He always brings the gospel to the Jews first. He wants that. His heart's desirous for them. I've already shown you those verses. His heart is desirous that Israel would embrace by faith a righteousness not their own. But they're not interested as a whole. There's always a remnant according to grace. Paul makes that clear in chapter 11 as well, or maybe it was 10. Paul makes that clear. But as a whole, they're not interested. By contrast, Gentiles are all about it. There's all kinds of Gentiles embracing and confessing Christ as their Savior and Lord. Their hope of salvation. That's Paul's ministry. It's a fruitful ministry. He's planting churches all in the Mediterranean world, the Roman world. Peter's not doing that. Peter's an apostle of the Jews and it's slow going. doesn't sound slow as we got started in Acts. His first sermon being filled with the Spirit, 3,000 people confess Christ as Savior. But in the bigger picture of all of Israel, it's a small minority. And opposition will increase. And Israel becomes increasingly resistant to the message proclaimed by Christians in general, and by the apostles in particular. And Paul's saying, that's ex what Isaiah said is exactly my life story. This is what I'm living. Gentiles embracing, finding. Jews resisting, not interested, turning away. Well, let's look at verse 1. That ready to be is probably, it doesn't really belong there. Verse 1 of chapter 65 is a hard verse, like a lot of the Old Testament is very hard to translate. And I'm not a linguist, I'm not an expert, but I can tell you that when Isaiah wrote verse, what we call verse 1, it consisted of 12 words. The English Standard Version takes those 12 words and it takes them 45 English words to try to put it into English. That gives you some idea of how difficult it is to take 12 words in one language. How do you communicate that in English? Because there is no exact equivalent. You cannot find a Bible that is an exact equivalent of another language. It's impossible. They're two different languages. Uh, we're not deprived because of that. I think God has given us His Word in a most magnificent way where the gospel and the truth, all the truths we need to know are fully bestowed upon us. But just know, translation, translating the Bible from one language to another is difficult. So I'm going to show you what a very wooden, stilted, kind of not a comfortable translation might look like if you took those 12 words 
and reduced them as far down as you could as to what Isaiah actually said, what the Lord said, it would look something like this. These little slashes are breaks in the word. So, I was thought is one word in Hebrew. All that is communicated by one word. Second word, not. They asked. That's thought number one. The second sentence also has three words. I was found, not they sought me. And the reason why those thoughts are in yellow is because, somewhat surprisingly, there are two different words in the Hebrew. So I think there's meant to be some sort of a distinction and difference, but I haven't figured out, to my own satisfaction, the nuanced difference between those two words for sought. But they are different words, and I could make something up, but I could be wrong, so I'm not going to do that. I just want you to know they're a little bit different word. The last thought has six words. I said, behold me, behold me, to a nation not named by my name. Twelve words in Hebrew, 45 in the English Standard Version. I didn't really count how many I reduced it to, but I've whittled it down to the main, the, the essential, what did the Lord say when he began responding to Isaiah? The first thing he wants you to know is that God was sought and found by Gentiles. That's, that's a big theme in Isaiah chapter 65. That's what Paul picks up in Romans when he recounts his ministry. God says, I was sought and I was found by Gentiles. The backside of that is, but not because Gentiles were asking for or seeking me. So it's an astounding truth. God is sought and found, but he wants you to know it's not because they were seeking or asking. That's the second part of those two. Not they asked, not they sought. So how is it that they find what they're not interested in looking for? They're not asking for it. They're not praying this big prayer like Isaiah prayed in Isaiah chapter 63 and in Isaiah chapter 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come. The Gentiles aren't praying that prayer. But they find. They acquire. They, they receive something that they weren't asking for. They receive something that they weren't seeking. The third sentence, I think, gives us some clue as to how this happened. The Lord says, behold me, behold me. That is so preferable to, here I am, here I am. It's the word behold. We found it all the way through Isaiah. The best translation for this behold me, behold me, is if you have an old King James Bible, because that's exactly what they render it. The old King James, the Lord says, behold me, behold me. Why do Gentiles find what they're not asking for? Because the Lord calls them to behold Him. And they find. And they're, they're seeking then because of the... We love Him because He first loved us. We find Him because He sought us. That's what's taking place with this wonderful behold me, behold me. It reminds me of a parable that Jesus told. It's kind of a double-sided parable, but the first parable really applies to what the Gentiles are experiencing. 
It's a very short parable, and if you think about it, I, you probably know which one I'm talking about. It's the parable of a treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In that parable, you've got a man. He's not looking for treasure. His life goal isn't one day I'm going to win it big. One day I'm going to really hit the big time. He just happened to be walking in a field. And he finds this treasure. And he sells everything he has to get that treasure. That's what the Gentiles are doing. That's what Paul's finding the Gentiles doing. Gentiles who didn't ask for Paul to be a missionary and plant a church in their town. Paul goes and they discover a treasure that's brought to them. And they're embracing by faith a righteousness that is achieved by Christ. I think that's a good description of what Isaiah is, is what the Lord says in Isaiah that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 10. It's an undeserved fortune, a startling event. This man's life is changed because he found this treasure that he wasn't looking for. And his life will never be the same. It reminds me of another parable. This one in Matthew chapter 21. This is an obscure parable. You're familiar of the father with two sons, and one is called a prodigal son. This is another parable about a father with two sons, but far less well known. So in Matthew chapter 21, a father with two sons goes to one son. It doesn't distinguish between older and younger. He goes to the first son and says, I want you to work in the field today. And the son says, ain't doing it. I got my own plans. Now I'm embellishing a little bit. But the son says, I'm not, I'm not going to work in your field. You know, I've got my own life. I want to live my way. But then he leaves and then at some point he decides, you know, I am going to go work in the field. And he works in the field. And then the father says to a second son the same thing. He tells that son, I want you to work in the field today. And the son says, on it, dad. You can count on me. I'm all about that field. I'll take care of it. Don't you worry. And then he doesn't. And Jesus says, now which of those did the will of his father? That's not hard. And, and the answer comes back, well, the first one who said he wasn't going to do it, but he wound up doing it. He did the will of his father. And then Jesus says, let me apply that to you. Here's Jesus' application. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. He's talking to these Pharisees, these scribes, these religious people who are all about, we are all about the will of God. We are praying for Messiah to come. And then he comes and they're not interested. And they crucify him. The tax collectors and the prostitutes, these sinners, they're not interested in the will of God. They're not interested in pleasing Him. They're not interested in any grace or mercy. They will live their own life. And then John the Baptist comes preaching a message of repentance. And they repent. And they enter the kingdom of God. Is that shocking? It's meant to be shocking. You've got these religious people that Jesus is up in their grill and confronting them that you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I don't care how much scripture you've memorized. 
I don't care how often you've gone to the temple to pray. I don't care how much you distinguish yourself from everybody else. I'm better than you, which is what you find in Isaiah chapter 65. Stay away from me. I'm too holy for you. Don't contaminate me. I'm too holy for that. And Jesus says, there's these individuals. They are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. That is shocking. That is somebody receiving something they weren't even looking for. Isaiah, or, uh, Paul says, this is Paul quoting Isaiah, Isaiah is so bold as to say, Isaiah, it doesn't tell me in Isaiah that he was bold when he wrote it. It tells me when Paul quotes that, Paul says, when Isaiah said that, let me tell you, it was bold. It was bold. It was daring. It's very interesting. There's two words that could be used by Paul when he says Isaiah was bold. The first word is used a smattering of times. It's time, it's, you'll find it in a case like uh, Jesus in the days before he was crucified. He was in the temple courtyards. And you'll remember different groups were approaching Jesus with these really hard questions because they thought they would trip him up and Jesus would disqualify himself. Jesus would make a fool of himself. It wouldn't turn out good. And Jesus always had the perfect answer. And finally, after a series, you know, different, the Herodians, the, the Pharisees, the, the, the uh, priests, these different groups are approaching, Sadducees, these different groups approaching. Finally, it says, no one dared ask him another question. It's not turning out well for them. They didn't dare. They did not dare. Stephen, before he's stoned by the Jews in Acts chapter 8, maybe, somewhere around there. Stephen is the first Christian martyr. Stephen is, is recounting Israel's history. And when he recounts Israel's history, he says, you remember when the Lord called Moses? How Moses was just tending flocks? And he saw a bush that was burning, but it wasn't consumed. And it says he dared not look at that bush. He knew this was something holy. He knew this was some... Uh, that God, it, in whatever, is somehow manifesting himself. He dared not look at the bush that was burning, but not consumed. That's the first word for dare. Now, you take that word for dare... And you ramp it up. You intensify it. You add, a, you add another part to that to say, this is even a bigger dare. That's what Paul uses. And it's the only time it's used in all the New Testament. It, I don't want to compare dares, but I, because I think maybe some of the other dares could have used that word, but they didn't. Paul did. What Paul wants you to know is what Isaiah just did there. That was bold. That was really bold. That was daring. The, what, what Isaiah just did there when he wrote that out. Why is it so daring? Why is it so daring? Why is it so bold? Why is it so risky? Because sinners don't like to be confronted with their, with their righteousness that falls short. I remember doing a funeral service a good number of years ago, and I don't really remember why, because it wasn't somebody immediately in our church. It must have been once removed or something. But I remember doing the funeral service, and the family... Uh, was clearly not happy with me that I did not preach their beloved one into the kingdom of heaven. Uh, 
I don't damn people to hell, and I don't preach people into the kingdom of heaven. Now, if somebody has a very credible profession of faith, I have no problem giving assurance that based upon their profession of faith, you know, they are in the kingdom of heaven. That's a wonderful thing. I never know how a life ends, so I asked my mentor way back in the day when I did my first funeral service well before here, and uh, I said, what do you do in a situation like that? And he told me, he's like, you don't damn people to hell, you don't preach them into heaven. You just lay out the gospel. I did that in that funeral service, and the family clearly wasn't happy. So by the time we got to the graveside, somebody took control, and he let everybody know that this loved one was in the kingdom of heaven. Because, because sinners don't like being confronted with a righteousness that falls short. I don't like being wrong. Do you like being wrong? Do you like working really hard at something? Really devoting yourself to something? And then you find out you did it all wrong? It was all a waste of time? It was all for naught? I don't like that. I don't think you like that. And that's what Isaiah is so bold is to do. You've got Gentiles not asking, not seeking, and they get it all. You've got Israelites who are rolling up their sleeves, trying as hard as they can. They are so certain they're part of the kingdom of heaven. And the Lord says, all day long I've stretched out my hand to you. You're a disobedient people and you will never come. You'll never enter so long as you clutch your own righteousness. That's bold to tell sinners your righteousness isn't good enough. That's bold still in America to tell people, I don't care how religious you are, how faithful you are in church, if you haven't received Christ's righteousness, it falls short, it falls flat, and it will do you no good. It doesn't make any difference that everybody in your family is a Christian. It doesn't make any difference that you're... How many generations go back they were pastors? None of that makes any difference if it hasn't changed my life. Salvation is one by one. You come to the cross one by one, not in groups. way that was really impressed upon me way back in when, I, when I read it this one time was when it, when it comes to when you stand before God Almighty, you will sing solo. You're not singing in a choir. You can't fake it. You either know the tune of grace or you don't. And that really hit it home with me because I used to sing in choir, boys' choir, when uh, the director of music at Millican went to Pilgrim Lutheran Church, uh, Hoffland, Elisha Hoffman or Eli Hoffman, Hoffland or something like And I was in a boys' choir at Pilgrim Lutheran Church. It was kind of a big deal. You know, we sang with these real high little voices. And I was all about the choir. I can still remember some of those songs I sang back when I was eight years old, seven, eight, nine years old. But there came a point, and this was probably intentional on his part, where he wanted you to now, now I want you to sing your part. And now you sing your part. And you sing, and I'm like, I'm not singing my part in front of this whole group. I'm not singing solo. And I dropped out of the choir. And I, I had a phobia about that. I've told people about that phobia. Like, dude, I'm, I'm talking to literally a phobia. When, I, when we were at the Free Methodist Church way back in Lincoln in the day, I was leading a Wednesday night. It was a small little church, old little old group of believers that met on a Wednesday night. There might be six, ten would probably be a lot. Once in a while, the, the lady that led music, we'd always sing a couple songs. She wouldn't be there, and they'd like, lead us. I'm like, I, you, no, I can't do that. I can't lead music. Oh, come on. There's like six of us. I'm like, I can't do it. I couldn't lead me. I could not lead music. I couldn't. I had a phobia about it. It goes all the way back. 
These are my suppressed me- her pains. I got over it because now I can. I, you get, at some point, you just don't care. Like, it doesn't make any difference. You know, if God's given you a song in your heart, if you know the tune of grace, sing it. It doesn't make any difference what people think. One of the most beautiful soloists I've ever heard in my life was Omar Schwarzengruber at my home church in Ohio. Once in a while, at Grace Bible Church, whoever was supposed to do special music, they were sick, they didn't show up, something. They didn't have special music, but it was part of what they normally did. So the pastor would say, Omar, have you got a song for us today? Omar would stand up where he was in the pew, stand right where he's at, and start singing. One, two songs, a cappella, whatever was on his heart, and it broke everybody else's heart. Because he had a song of grace. He didn't have this self-imposed righteousness. He didn't think highly of himself. He knew who his Savior was. And ask him to sing a song, he was more than glad to do it. Oh, that God would give us a song to sing, a song of grace that only he gives. What are your comments and questions? Sarah. I think uh, that's a good question. Clearly, it's prophetic in the sense that the door of the... I don't think it really, I'm going to say mostly prophetic. There's, there's always been a smattering of, of proselyte Gentiles who came, identified with Israel. I don't think that's what Isaiah is talking about. He's talking about a, a wave of Gentiles that are receiving the gospel, that are being embraced by grace and the righteousness that God gives. So I, I would take that as prophetic. What's your second? It's happening then. It's ha- It's happening in Isaiah, and it's happening in Paul's day. And then in Romans chapter 11, we find how it resolves. There's lots of stories like that, because there's that other story. It's probably, uh, is it the man born blind? Or no, it's a different, because he was born blind. There's another story in the Gospels where the man's healed, and he picks up his mat, right? And they're like, ah, it's the Sabbath day. You can't carry your mat on the Sabbath day. Dude, he's just been delivered. You know, he just, he just found a treasure that only Messiah gives. He doesn't care that he's broken your Sabbath by carrying his mat. I think the man in, in Acts, he doesn't care that, like, uh, tone it down. Like, that's a little much for our Jewish temple. Like, you know, we don't worship that way. He's not about that. So, I mean, but Scripture does say all things should be decently in order. I'm not advocating for being out of control. But you know what? I think most of us, for myself, I'm a little stiff. I think Hannah would say most of us are a little stiff. We're just a little stiff. Hannah is very expressive in her worship. She does such a great job in Good News Club, and we're all standing there like, and Hannah's like all about it. <laughs> and that, that's, a, that's a liberating free thing. I mean, Jack Hayford has a lot of things not to like. I don't know if he's still living even or not. But I remember hearing Jack Hayford preach a message on, you know what keeps a lot of Christians' hands in their pockets? I mean, let's be honest, it's pride. It's just pride. We're afraid to, we're afraid to worship the real living God who died on a cross, who came in the, in the sun and died on a cross for our sins. And we're going to keep our hands in our pockets? Let it go. Let it go. Somebody else? 